This is Old News, a podcast where we take the Old Testament and we apply it to youth ministry. Welcome. Open your Bibles. Hello and welcome to Old News. I'm Tom Elms and today I'm looking through the book of Jonah uh, with a friend of mine, Mike Dicker. Welcome, Mike. Hey, how are you going? Yeah, good. It's really good to have you uh, with me today. Thanks for agreeing to spend some time uh, talking about stuff. Uh, I thought I'd ask you a few questions about yourself. Uh, yeah, who are you, Mike? Who am I? Uh, well, that's such a profound philosophical question. How deep do you want me to go? Um, look, I, I'll tell you about my situation. I am the Dean of Students at YouthWorks College, but have only been here for the last six months. And before that, have been the Youth and Children's Minister at Petersham Anglican for 13 and a half years. Uh, married uh, and I have three kids and uh, they're delightful. And so I'm like a proper full-time children's minister, actually, like at home at work, everywhere, children all over the place. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, so obviously you've just, you've wrapped your whole world uh, around youth ministry for a really significant amount of your life. Uh, what is it about youth ministry that's kept you there for so long? I think I love the energy and the potential and the sharpness of doing youth ministry. I, it, there's no room for being lazy when you're doing youth ministry. And so there's lots of things I love about doing ministry with adults, but adults are often very gracious. And so, you know, you can be kind of boring. You can kind of repeat the same kind of old cliches and ask the same kind of comprehension questions and they'll rally themselves and, and get along with it. But when you do youth ministry and you're trying to explain the Bible and open up the Word of God and make it engaging, There, you just can't sit on your heels at all. You know, you got a minute, maybe 30 seconds tops, to kind of start introducing, you know, something in the Bible to talk about. And if you haven't captured the question that's on their heart and on their mind, then they're just going to glaze over. And I think you only experience that once, maybe twice max, before you then want to put in the extra effort to make sure that next time when you go to engage them with the Bible, You've, you've got the question, you've captured their heart so that they're interested in what's going on. And I think that's what I love about youth ministry is that they keep you on your toes. You know, they, they're sharp, they're ruthless, they're logical, they ask amazing questions, which keeps me engaged with the Bible and also thinking about how the word of the Lord applies uh, to my life living, you know, in 21st century Australia where I'm at. So that's what I love about youth ministry and, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, they almost don't let you... Uh, put in those those throwaway lines uh, that that you kind of are just assuming or hoping you get away with because they pick onto them. Well, that, yeah, they'll ask you to explain them, right? So you can't be lazy at all. You know, there's, there's no opportunity for it. And they their questions and their logic, I think, are some of the most underrated things about young people. I think often adults presume them to be slow and unintelligent and not kind of as you know smart as uh, the average grown up. But of course, child logic um, and youth logic is almost flawless like they don't always arrive at the right conclusion but their their logic is um is amazing and and kind of in, in its simplicity helps get to the heart of the issue very quickly so that's what i love about it yeah awesome and then uh what sort of experience have you had uh engaging with some of the old testament texts uh, and teaching them in in the youth ministry that you were running 
Yeah, so we used to go through a bit of a, a pattern. We tried lots of different patterns over the years, but you know, over the course of the year, we wanted to have a good balance of New Testament books, Old Testament books, some topical kind of stuff, um, and try to do things in kind of four-week bites. And so, you know, some of the really big Old Testament books, you might just do the highlights, you know, through Isaiah or something like that, or go through you know a part of Genesis, and then you know do a smaller letter in the New Testament, or the highlights of the Gospels, you know, over a over a cycle, just to kind of keep mixing things up uh, and so we would go through and, and teach uh, Old Testament books that either you know were ones that were sometimes neglected or you could see would have uh, you know capture the imagination of young people so judges uh, but not the end of judges that seems to be a little bit too um, maybe a bit too edgy for young people <laughs> the pack rape and the rest at the end there but um, you know Genesis big questions there setting up worldviews uh, you know, doing Jonah, like we're going to look at today, and uh, and of course, you know, some of the big prophecies that become fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and really, and Proverbs, you know, all that kind of great stuff. There's uh, so much in there. And so, yeah, we would go through th the whole Bible, try, you know, trying to work out um, what would be a good diet for, for teenagers that we were. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, I think it's um, it's funny that you mentioned judges in that, uh, like a few, a few weeks ago when I was, I was hanging out with Ruth Lucabio, yeah. that was one of the books that she kind of brought to mind and that I'm currently trying to wrap my head around uh, <laughs> with, with thinking. And I, I'm, yeah, I think I'll probably challenge challenge myself to, get, to look at that in the new year, and especially yeah. the end part that we, we've got to find yeah. a way of talking about it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, the, it's like we believe in the whole council of scripture, you know, all God breathed. But it, of course... It's, it is all useful for correcting and teaching and training, but not all of it at the same time and at the, for people at the same stage of life. And only once, you know, we'd have like a Bible study group, uh, youth Bible study groups, and I would often say to them at the start of the year, look, is there anything particular that you want to have a look through? Like throw it up, you know, and I'm happy to kind of talk about it. And, you know, usual kind of ones, revelation, you know, what's that all about? And, you know, there's those kind of things. But we, we actually tackled that one a few times in youth group. And so people didn't ask for it so often but then the very last one I did for a co-ed group of year 12s 11 and 12s and I said what would you like to look at and they said the song of songs <laughs> and um and I really had to think about that for a second and I said yeah okay let me think about it and the next week I came back and I'd read through the song of songs and I said look I I'm not sure under safe ministry standards where I can actually talk to this group about the kind of stuff that's in there because if you can read Song of Songs, like with the euphemisms, understanding it like a year eight boy, you've probably got it. And it's not particularly clean in terms, like it's fairly explicit. And uh, I was like, you know what? We're going to have a look at some of the overarching themes and we're just going to kind of leave it there. And I'm not sure you can in youth ministry kind of talk about Song of Songs, at least not in depth. Maybe for someone to challenge me on that, but I think you get into some pretty awkward territory. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and it's, it's funny um, as we kind of think those things through. And, and also, I guess, just as we more and more uh, get further into the 21st century and consider our inappropriateness within youth ministry, yeah, uh, what was okay. I encouraged them to read it on their own, you know, and, to <laughs> and it gave them the kind of the tools and the lenses to kind of read it and think about it. But, uh, yeah, I think discussing it in a co-ed situation, I thought uh, it's just going to get a little too intimate. Yeah, awesome. Well, this makes me feel like Jonah's a really safe place for us to be hanging out today. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, how about we have start having a look uh, at the context of this book? Mm -hmm. 
So Jonah's a pretty interesting uh, little text that we find in the prophets. Uh, what, what do we even know about this guy, Jonah? Well, I mean, he is a guy who gets mentioned in one other place outside of the book of Jonah, which is in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse uh, 23 through to 28 under the reign of uh, Jeroboam number two up in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned there as a prophet. And uh, that's really all we get about him. There's nothing else outside of um, Jonah and that passage that talks about him. So he's not a particularly prominent kind of um, prophet, but he does get mentioned in the New Testament a couple of times by Jesus in Luke's gospel and in uh, Matthew's gospel as well. There's the sign of Jonah. So he's famous enough to get mentioned um, in the you know, popular kind of discourse with Jesus. Um, but in the Old Testament, he's got, and he's got his own book, so that's kind of good, but he only really only gets this one other little part in uh, Two Kings. Yeah, and he's kind of a weird little prophet in that part of, of Two Kings because he's, so he's the prophet to one of, well, the biggest jerks yeah. that kind of ruled uh, in Israel. And he kind of prophes- he prophesies in favor of this jerk yeah. as well. Which, which actually sets up, for many people, they can see a setup here for the book of Jonah in the historical situation with Jeroboam too. Because what you have is the northern kingdom, Israel, under, you know, it's the divided kingdom. You've got the Judah in the south, uh, the ten tribes of Israel up in the north. And there's prophecies against Israel that Assyria is going to come and wipe them off the face of the earth at some point. They're worshipping God on the high places, in, you know, not in Jerusalem, not according to the ways that God has set. And uh, this jerk, Jeroboam too, comes and I think it says, you know, he does evil in the eyes of the Lord and does not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, his grandfather, um, which he had caused Israel to commit. But even though this guy is a failed king and not in line with God's heart, God sends a word through the prophet Jonah that says, I will save you. And and God does save the northern Israelite kingdom and even expands their territory because he sees that there's oppression and they're suffering and he saves them what with what looks like without repentance or without any kind of you know acknowledgement that God is is king in Israel they have it they don't tear down the high places they don't rediscover the the book of the law or any of that kind of stuff uh, and change their ways God just saves them and it seems as though if you were just reading that story on its own you might then presume that God loves Israel so much and he is so willing to save them that he would do that despite their disobedience. And then if that's what you did start to believe, you would just kind of continue on in your course of disobedience. And now enter the story of Jonah, which is kind of a corrective to that kind of understanding where Jonah, maybe as a representative of Israel, his name means the dove, and sometimes Israel has been called the dove in poetry. Maybe Jonah is like a representative of Israel, and what does Jonah do? He hears the word of the Lord, he disobeys the word of the Lord, and yet the whole way through the book of Jonah, he's very cocky about his own standing before God, despite his disobedience, that God would save him and save Israel without any repentance. And so then, you know, God kind of uses the craftiness of the book of Jonah to, to correct that view. Yeah, so I think I really uh, appreciate this book and the way it's going about it. I think as well a couple of helpful uh, things to just say uh, is that really this this book, when when people think of Jonah, the first thing that comes to mind is big fish Mm. or whale. And we have a habit of making uh, the entire story of the way in which we think about it being this kind of miracle where Jonah is swallowed by the fish and he's saved. 
Um, but th that's not the point of this story. And we're going to talk more about the point of the story as we go. But I think um, Tim Mackey says in a really helpful way, uh, the fish is not the thing. Yeah. And as we look through the book, we need to remember that the fish is an element of the story that God is using, uh, but isn't the key function of the story. Uh, the story is about uh, Jonah and ultimately about God. Yeah, I mean, it's a captivating image, right? Someone being rescued from drowning by being swallowed by this kind of um, mammalian submarine that God uses to save his drowning prophet. So it is an image of salvation, which, you know, the, the book of Jonah is about salvation. And I can understand why it captures people. It also makes a nice image for your sermon series or your youth group talk or your flyer, whatever it's going to be, you know, a nice big whale maybe with someone inside. Pinocchio's got you know, a similar kind of thing going with it that captures people's imagination. But of course, it's a book which is about a miracle, but the miracle isn't necessarily the salvation of Jonah in the fish. The miracle is really the salvation of this huge pagan city and their response to God's word. That's, the, that's actually the real kind of miracle in the book. Yeah, that seems like a good place to launch from uh, mm. into the text. Yeah, and so as we start to look at the text, I think uh, most people would break up uh, Jonah into its four chapters mm. to speak through, which I know you've done in the past. Uh, and so Jonah 1, uh, yeah, I guess just the classic uh, start, start to a narrative where we have our, our, our new our dude, our prophet Jonah introduced and that he's given from the beginning straight in the start, verse 2 of chapter 1, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And we... As usual, we, we're kind of expecting the prophet then to go before uh, the people and declare the word of God. But Jonah uh, instead turns in the opposite direction and runs away. Yeah. Uh, he goes, he finds a ship, he pays a fare and he jumps on board uh, and flees from the Lord. Uh, and so, uh, so I guess as things tend to, tend to go for those who do flee the Lord, things don't go smoothly for him. And there's a, a huge storm uh, that... Uh, he's he's kind of stuck in the ship's stuck in. They're fear for they're all fearing for their lives. The sailors are freaking out, praying to their various gods. Uh, they wake up Jonah in this kind of uh, strange image where he's asleep and, and ask him to pray for his god. Uh, as they they all think that they're going to die, mm. uh, that the ship is is in a lot of trouble. They think they're going to sink and drown. And there's this ironic moment where they ask Jonah what god he believes in, and he says, "I believe in Yahweh." which considering he's, he's just ignored Yahweh and run away from him yeah, yeah. is kind of this weird moment. Um, but they, um, yeah, they, they plan what, what they're going to do. Jonah, they cast lots. They see that Jonah is the cause of what's going on. Uh, and so then when they ask Jonah what to do, uh, instead of saying, and I don't think we always think about this, instead of Jonah saying, oh, let's, if we turn around the ship and head back to port, the storm will probably stop and yeah. I'll head back in the right direction. Jonah continues to escape, really. He continues a theme of escapism and, and gets them to throw him overboard. And there's this weird moment of contrast between the good character of the sailors who are against the idea of murdering him mm. and think that that's the wrong thing to do and his uh, attempts to, to flee from what God wants him to do. Uh, and so he's thrown overboard uh, into the sea. The sea goes calm again and then the men... Uh, fear the Lord, they fear Yahweh and offer sacrifices to him and make vows to him. And so the sailors, in this weird contrast, have kind of glorified uh, the God of Israel and, and converted to follow him. Mm. 
this really weird intro to a prophet who, um, yeah, is clearly not particularly submissive to God and what God wants him to do. Uh, As you kind of open your series, what sort of things are you thinking about here? Well, I mean, verse 3 is really the beginning of a a range, like just one after the other of kind of, you know, ironic surprises that we find throughout the book of Jonah. You know, the the beginning, verses 1 and 2, is a very standard formula. You know, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up go right to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, which, you know, you're thinking, that sounds like a very reasonable kind of task for a prophet. Let's go preach against a wicked nation, you know, an enemy of Israel, the Assyrians, uh, because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, But then, of course, what we're expecting in verse 3 is that Jonah obeys and goes. And yet the first surprise is that he runs away from the Lord. And then there's just this series of ironic kind of surprises that just unsettle the whole narrative and 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 makes us sit up and pay attention. Like, mm. Wait a second, if he's a prophet of the Lord, why is he not bringing the word of the Lord to bear on the people in this time and place, which is what he should do? And of course, as he goes away and flees the Lord, who he believes is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, you all of a sudden start to work out that there's a contradiction even in his own thought. Like mm. He believes that Yahweh is the God of heaven and of the sea and the dry land. And what does he seek to do? But to go to the sea, to flee from the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. So he even recognizes there's no place for him to flee. But one of the things that really stands out for me as I look through Jonah chapter 1 is how passive Jonah is. So we don't find out what reason uh, he has for running away from the Lord in chapter 1. Uh, until we get to chapter 4 and then we'll find out why he was running away from the Lord and we, we might think he's scared it could be any kind of range of reasons but he decides to run away and then he gets onto this ship and he's, he's sailing for a distant land in the opposite direction um, but then as things kind of you know the storm whips up there's the squall uh, what are the sailors doing well they're trying to they're working as hard as they can to love their neighbor and to save the people on the ship what is Jonah doing he's asleep like sound asleep. He, he couldn't care less for the lives of the people on that boat. And, and then eventually when they wake him up and drag him up, they're all praying to their gods because they're concerned for their own lives and for each other. And Jonah's like, yeah, you know, like whatever, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm safe. It's almost as if he's kind of in a smug way securing his own salvation because he believes in Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. But he's not willing to lift a finger for any of the other lives of the people on that boat that he's with. And so they beg him to pray to his God and then they cast lots. And then it turns out that he is the problem and he doesn't offer up the information willingly. They have to kind of draw it out of him. What have you done? And he says, well, you know, he tells them that he'd been running away. And so therefore, you know, what would they do? Well, then maybe they would work out that you sacrifice this person to the God that they've upset. But the pagans don't. They actually show him love and mercy and graciousness and try all the harder to try and save their necks by rowing harder, throwing cargo overboard. Um, And Jonah doesn't kind of say, look, I think actually things would sort out if you did throw me overboard. He says nothing. It's only later when they say, what should we do? Well, you know, well, throw me overboard. And no, no, we won't do that. We'll keep going. And eventually, right, they say, okay, we will throw you overboard. Um, but, you know, Lord, don't hold us you know, accountable for this man's life. Mm. Jonah doesn't choose to jump. He's not active in this at all. He's completely passive, completely unconcerned for their welfare, and he waits until they actually have to pick him up and throw him overboard. 
and then these men who have loved their neighbour in the way that Jonah should have loved his neighbours then go and love the Lord by making vows to his name. And so the prophet who you expect to love the Lord, his God with all his heart, soul, strength, uh, heart, soul, mind and strength and obey the Lord runs away. The prophet of the Lord who you expect also to love his neighbour as himself, as it says in his law, doesn't. But the pagans who worship foreign gods and the pagans who don't have the same law code of loving their neighbours love their neighbour more than he does and then love the Lord God eventually in the way that the prophet should have. So all these kind of surprising ironies that kind of make us sit up and take notice and think, actually, if I'm someone who says, I follow the Lord, Yahweh, I follow Jesus, then how does that bear itself out in my actions? Like, do I, do I actually, do I just say that or do I actually believe it? If I think about my life and my deeds and what I say, how well does that kind of match up? So they're the kind of things that, that uh, pop out for me when I look at chapter one. Yeah, I think that's really um, helpful in that I was listening to, um, to Paul Tripp preach on this passage and he said something that really stuck with me afterwards, which was like, theology not lived is theology not believed. Mm. And he was talking about the gap between Jonah's words in declaring his faith, but his deeds in clearly not being a manifestation of that and so yeah. he is not while, while he'll still identify himself in that way uh, I think yeah that's a really good ex- example uh, of what a, what of our youth kids can fall into in that they're people who will say and they may even at school quite happily say yeah. oh, I'm a Christian and I'll go to youth group and it's things I like but then they're the way in which they live doesn't match up uh, especially when uh, what God calls them to do isn't what they want to do or mm. it goes kind of against their their desires yeah, and so right from the very first chapter, Jonah kind of holds up this mirror to us that kind of says, do you care for what God cares for, right? Are you, are you a passionate follower of God who not just pays lip service to him, but then also lives it out? Um, because if you don't, then here's a rebuke for you, right? Like in this story, who are you like? Because the pagans have shown you up. And you think about, yeah, if you're in the playground and you're the Christian, but you gossip more about other people, you're less generous to other people, you're less forgiving, you're more judgmental, you're more harsh with them. And then you see the pagans around you, you know, the non-Christians showing much greater love, much more compassion, being much more reasonable, then sure, people are going to say, well, why would I want to join your brand of Christianity if this is what it looks like? And so already there's this harsh rebuke from the irony we see with Jonah and his, uh, his job as the prophet of the Lord. Yeah, I think that's an important challenge uh, that we can take forward. And so then when we get to chapter 2, Jonah's been uh, f- in the water, about to sink, about to drown, and then the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And so in spite of all that's happened so far, in spite of Jonah's disobedience, uh God has chosen to show grace to him mm. and he's saved him uh, while not probably in the way any of us would like uh, ourselves to be saved. Uh, he's been saved nonetheless. And then Jonah turns and prays, uh, I guess, the the main, main aspect here that might most align with the style of prophecy before and after in, in that he prays this prayer in, in beautiful Hebrew poetry uh, that demonstrates his his reliance or at least a recognition of his reliance on God mm. uh, his re- recognition of his situation uh, and what that means 
uh, yeah, and so it kind of shows his, throughout all of this stuff, he's still dem- demonstrating a, a trust or understanding of God's sovereignty over all things, mm. uh, that he is in control and that he uh, is the one who must be clung to above all else. Uh, but repentance is missing. Mm. It's got this huge sovereignty focus and and trust focus and, and reliance focus, but not... Uh, there's, it's all about God and Jonah's situation, but not about Jonah's deeds, uh, which is kind of a weird, weird moment. And then it's kind of a, it's beautiful and it's cool, but the, it lacks that extra, extra step. But Jonah still seems to be on this journey. Uh, and then finally, in verse ten, the the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land, yeah. uh, and which which for me is just another really cool image of God's grace. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but. God's sovereignty is demonstrated where Jonah is back exactly where God wants him to be. Uh, while Jonah has fleed from God, God's been in control the whole time. And here he is uh, back in the area of near to Nineveh. Yeah, and it resets the story and we're like, all right, start again. What's going to happen this time? Right? Mm. That's where we end up. Um, yeah, there's lots of curious things, I think, about this prayer. And there's lots of great things. Firstly, this is a prayer which is basically made up of lines drawn from several psalms and mm. the book of psalms, which says to you that Jonah is someone who's schooled in the book of psalms and knows how to pray. He's equipped with the language to pray. Um, you know, Again, building this picture of Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who is truly a Hebrew, right? who truly believes in Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, who knows the law, and yet again, what we see is perhaps his failure to obey or maybe even acknowledge repentance. And when seen in the background of 2 Kings chapter 14, if that's one of the things Jonah is trying to work against, this idea of God saving purposes for Israel despite their rebellion and without any need for repentance, then this is what we kind of see exemplified in Jonah. And one of the things you really notice about Jonah 1 and 2 is a lot of the directional language. So in chapter 1, the word of the Lord uh, comes to Jonah, son of Imitai, and it's, it's get up and go. Um, and so what Jonah does is he gets up and he goes down to Joppa and then down onto the ship, down into the belly of the ship, and then he's thrown over the ship down into the, the, the belly of the, the sea. And, and so the prayer kind of narrates that descent, you know, in his distress um, you know, I called to the Lord, he answered me from the deep, the realm of the dead, I called for help and he listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. He's just on this current trajectory down. And one of the first things it shows us is that this is the trajectory of sin. If you're going to disobey the Lord, you might have intentions of getting up and going out, but in the end it always leads down and down to the place of the dead. And so as Jonah is kind of sinking down through the waters and and narrating what it was like for him with the engulfing waters threatening him, the deep surrounding him, seaweed wrapped around his head, he is truly on his way to Hades, to the place of the dead where he'll be seen no more. And yet he's rescued by this rescue fish, um, which is presumably where he has the opportunity to, to take a breath of air, to consider his descent and then think about his predicament before the Lord and his helplessness. And then there's this change of direction in the language when you get to uh, verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose up to you, to your holy temple. Uh, And then, you know, 
uh, the Lord hears and the Lord saves. And, you know, firstly, I think, you know, here is a picture of recognising that sin is not a plaything. Sin has terrible consequences and the disobedience of the Lord always leads down to the place of death. And yet God is gracious in letting our prayers rise to him. And the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land is powerful to save those who are helpless in sin. And that's the first thing to kind of look at. But of course, like you've noticed, there's no repentance in there. And verse 8 is a bit of a kind of a dodgy kind of verse in there. In the middle of his recognition of his helplessness and dependence on the God for salvation, he then kind of throws in this little line, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. You know, um, those suckers, those pagans, you know, they're, they're doomed to death. There's no help for them, but I'm an Israelite. Um, me, with shouts of grateful praise, I'll sacrifice to you and, and I've vowed to you and I'll make good on that because salvation comes from the Lord. And so you get this, you get two kind of things, this recognition from Jonah that salvation comes from the Lord but then this kind of like you know salvation comes from the Lord for Israelites mm. not for other people and because I'm Jonah because I'm an Israelite I'll be okay even though I've been disobedient sin's not going to be the end for me because because of Yahweh not like those pagans out there they're, they're doomed right almost like the, you, you get a snapshot into Jonah's worldview here even after chapter one where we saw the pagans actually show him up in terms of you know loving God and loving neighbor yeah, he's still taking a little pot shot at Nineveh. Absolutely. Even though he's yeah, he's there and, and I think it's yeah, it's just it's just a funny journey that he goes on and that even through what we would see as being quite beautiful scripture, we can still see Jonah's uh, own intentions seeping mm. seeping their way in. Yeah, so it's encouraging, right? You, you get this kind of encouraging, oh, well, he's obviously recognising his sin here and his helplessness. That's good. Like, he's, he's a good prophet after all. He's just obviously made a mistake. But there is this hint that mm, maybe second time round, there's going to be an improvement, but he's not there yet. Yeah, cool. Well, that's a really uh, helpful uh, way of, of, of thinking about that little prayer and of discussing it. And I think that should be yeah really helpful for the second kind of chunk of the series mm. as we move and have a look at, at chapter three. And so chapter three, we have uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And I, I find this sentence, um, especially as I've dwelt on it, uh, to just be just to impact me more and more mm. uh, over time as I see God in his grace come back to Jonah again uh, and give him the opportunity to be his prophet to be someone who will carry his message that in spite of all the things Jonah's done all the terrible character that we've seen where we would just want to disregard him completely at this point like pick another guy and and they'll probably do a better job no Jonah comes back uh, God comes back to Jonah chooses says no i'm going to give you this message the message of salvation for people and you're going to take it for them in spite of your flaws uh, which also helps me to ref reflect on the fact that it's the message is god's message not jonah's message mm. and what he's going to take to the people is a message from god to his people not from jonah to mm. those people that he's just using this guy using this incredibly flawed guy to carry uh, a beautiful message that will result in the salvation of many people uh, so Jonah rocks up at the city and gives this half-hearted declaration, uh, which is just a few words uh, that in 40 more days Nineveh will be overthrown, uh, that he kind of just walks in, 
says this says this spiel, walks out, uh, and we have this complete transformation of the city. That the words meet, reach the king, and the in response to Jonah's half-hearted declaration, we have a whole-hearted response uh, from mm. these people, from these pagans, uh, who have who are evil, who do horrific things, one of the most brutal civilizations ever known. Mm. And they, they turn to the God of Israel and repent and follow him to the point where even, even the animals uh, are turning uh, <laughs> to him, which is such a, a strange image for us. And, but, uh, but this beautiful image of God's mercy towards an evil uh, people in their response. Mm. Uh, yeah, a really, really kind of profound moment in the literature uh, and one that that kind of reflects strangely on Jonah. Yeah, and in many ways, chapter 3 kind of is the story that we expected Jonah to be at the beginning, right? You know, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and then we expect Jonah obeys the word of the Lord and goes. That's what we thought in chapter 1. But we've been through this process, and now we're reset. Chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes a second time. Great demonstration of God's grace. Go preach this. And chapter uh, 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh, and we're like, ah, okay. Everything's back on the right track here. Good one, bro. Good one, right. He's learned his lesson. He's been saved. He's obviously got his priorities right. And now he heads off to Nineveh. Um, and, and I understand what you're saying, the, the half-hearted message of Jonah. But I think actually as you read it in chapter 3, you, you're not sure if it's half-hearted yet because you're looking at it. He goes a day's journey. He's proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, and you're not sure how he's saying that, I think, at this point. Like if he's if that's a message he's delighted to bring, if he's reluctant to bring, and maybe he is thinking, all right, this is the capital of Assyria, these are the people that flay people, their enemies alive, and he's telling them that they're doomed to destruction. Um, so, you know, they might skin him alive, they might, you know, uh, impale him and march him around the city as some kind of guy who speaks against the regime. Um, so we don't know, you know, if there's a if there's a fear in his voice or a delight or if he's he's just saying it kind of quietly. But no matter how he's saying it, um, it's clear from verse five that it has a very powerful impact because the Ninevites, all of them believe God and it makes its way all the way to the king himself who repents in sackcloth and ashes, which is never something to overlook. I think, you know, we. We're used to repentance often being an internal thing. Um, maybe we might say confession out loud in church. We certainly confess our sins in prayer, not very often to other people and not very often visibly. But here is someone in a royal position who takes the clothes of a peasant, of a, of, of a very low position, as a way of demonstrating their repentance. So this is absolute repentance you know repentance and as you said you know a half-hearted message but a whole-hearted repentance that goes throughout the city uh, even down to the animals and there's this huge fast so we're not eating we're wearing itchy terrible clothes we hear this message and we believe it is this what Jonah was expecting is this what he wanted we're going to find that out in chapter four but certainly what we learn in chapter three is that God's judgment is real, God's judgment is good, and people hearing about God's judgment is the catalyst for their repentance so that they can be saved from judgment. And I think, you know, as a Westerner reading this story and the way that I think about judgment, you know, um, I'm reticent to kind of be all judgy in hellfire and brimstone or tell anyone that they're going to hell or that God might one day hold them account for their sins. But of course... That's because we often think about judgment as being 
you know, hate speech or some kind of, um, I don't know, evil, right? Judgment is an evil thing that we want to avoid at all costs. But uh, here in Jonah, judgment is a loving kindness of God. Because imagine Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. Mm. Imagine the word of the Lord doesn't come to Nineveh to let this many, this great city know that what they are doing is about to bring them destruction. No warning. Like what sort of a loving God would then just destroy them? Like let these people go on this path to destruction. So in God's love and kindness, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like what you're doing is wicked and evil and judgment and justice, which we love so much in our world, is going to have to come upon you. But because I'm a, not only a just God, I'm a gracious God, here is my servant, the prophet Jonah, to tell you about your sin so that you might repent. And again, I think as we think about Jonah for our world, here is the announcement of God's judgment that is really a loving kindness of God because his judgment also comes with his mercy and grace, which is what we you know, find out at the end. when Verse 10, when God saw all they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on the destruction. Here is a wonderful picture of God's judgment, justice, and his grace and mercy, which is all part and parcel of the Christian gospel with what we see in the Lord Jesus who himself. You know, John 3.16 you know, is well quoted, but people often don't think about the following verses where Jesus you know, comes as a light to expose our sinfulness, mm. and yet those who walk into the light can have their sins forgiven, not cover them over again in the darkness. And so God's judgment, his justice, is always comes with his grace and mercy. And so the gospel is to be preached as a word of judgment, but with the offer of God's mercy and grace, which is what you know Jonah does here. And of course, is a great, um, well, m- maybe it's one of those things actually just kind of po- points a needle into our own hearts and about how resistant we are to think of, of uh, God's justice and God's judgment being part and parcel with his mercy and grace. Yeah, and so as we get into chapter four, we have this, uh, yeah, I guess really frustrating and strange end to the book. We see that the redemption of Jonah's or his own personal character redemption is is pretty short-lived as he gets angry mm. uh, that, that people have responded to his preaching, uh, that people have turned to God, that they have uh, repented, and that then in response to this, uh, God has shown compassion and grace and love. Uh, and so he... We see that this is why he originally fleed, that he didn't think it was right for God to uh, save these pagans. He didn't think it was right for God to spare Nineveh, but he knew that God was, was, was going to do that. And so he didn't want to go and preach to them. He knew that God was compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Uh, using the, the title of, of character that God gives himself in Exodus after the golden calf incident uh, to, to accuse God and to say, uh, I think this is so wrong that you would respond in compassion in this way mm. uh, that I'd rather be dead than to live in a world where you show love to these pagans. <laughs> um, it's radical, isn't it? Yeah, it's intense. It's, uh, I guess, what, you'd, what you find uh, is, is more similar to a, a kid having a tantrum in a supermarket Absolutely. when he's not getting what he's wanting. He's like, mm. I would rather be dead than live in a world where you don't let me have this Mars bar. Yeah, like, it's, yeah it's crazy. Uh, and then... Um, God then kind of responds to him with this this question of, is it right to be angry, for, for you to be angry? But, but Jonah doesn't respond. He seems to have stormed off. Uh, he's made himself a shelter in the shade and he sat there sulking. Uh, and, and then there's this weird kind of leafy plant moment where God 
God grows this plant for Jonah, giving him some shade uh, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah loves the plant. It's the best thing in the world. Mm. Uh, but by the next day, the Lord sends a worm uh, which chews and eats the plant. And Jonah finds himself back uh, where he was in the sun. Uh, and it once again, gets really angry about it, wants to die. Uh, and God challenges him. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Uh, you've been concerned about this plant, but you did not tend it or make it grow. You did nothing to help this plant. Um, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Uh, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh where there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and also many animals? Mm. Uh, finishing with kind of this, it's, it feels unfinished, but as God makes this statement to Jonah, uh, you care about this plant, why shouldn't we care uh, about all these these people? It's a strange kind of place for this the book to end and an interesting place for us to end a series. Yeah, but I mean, chapter four is really what kind of pulls all the threads of Jonah together. And again, as we kind of look back over the book, we come to understand why he was running away in the first place, not because he was scared of the Assyrians, not because he doubted the power of God's word. In fact, if you think about Jonah and the way he thinks about God's word, he probably has a, a higher view of scripture than even we do. Mm. Uh, you know, he recognizes that if he goes to Nineveh and preaches this message that has been given to him, the word of the Lord, he knows that God, who is rich in mercy and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, is likely to work through his word to bring these people to repentance and forgive them. And so because he believes in the power of the word so much and doesn't want them to be forgiven, he runs away. And that, that was why he ran away. That's what we find out here in chapter 4. So as we read back over the book, we see why he was running away. Um, we also see those little hints about Jonah and maybe his own contentment at God's salvation and justice and mercy for him when he was helpless. But then we also see his duplicity, that he really He's happy to receive all those things when it's him, but he's not so happy to um, see those things dealt out to his enemies and those that he doesn't love. And there's this real dual standard here that really kind of holds a mirror up to ourselves as well. Because um, we love justice, we love fairness, we love equality, we, we love all those things, right? They're the, they're the things we say our modern world is built on. But if we're really honest about it, we probably really only love those things when it's about justice and fairness and equality for us, right? Well, you know, we can be gracious to others, but there are certain people in our world who we don't want to see be treated equally or to have the sort of justice that they're asking for um, because they're our enemies. And it's a, it's a question to ask ourselves, right? Who are our enemies? You know, in the Western world where we live, so many of us, you know, we hear the words of Jesus, love your enemies, but we would deny that we have any enemies. Oh, there are people I don't like, there are people I find annoying, but if, you know, we're too enlightened to evolve to have enemies. And yet it would have been acutely obvious for Jonah who his enemies were. It's the Assyrians, right? They attack us, they, they want to conquer us. Um, for Jesus, in those hearing around him hearing his words, it would have been very obvious who they were. It's the Romans and those that seek to crucify and oppress us. Uh, but in our day and age, who is your enemy is a good question to ask. And, and I wonder if we rephrase it, Maybe it's about who are those people who we who we don't have time for. Maybe that that's it, right? Maybe we don't feel actively persecuted by anybody, or maybe we don't feel any particular hatred or animosity towards. But who are the people that we're apathetic to? 
you know, the people that we just couldn't care less about and we, we don't we wouldn't bother preaching the word of the Lord to them. We don't want to see them come to um, uh, repentance and forgiveness. Um, but here in Jonah, we get asked these questions because we see in Jonah this part of our this corner of our own hearts. And there's this wonderful little enacted parable that happens where Jonah has a hissy fit. Um, isn't this what I said? This is why I ran away. This is why I tried to forestall, right? I knew that you would do this. I just, I, like I bloody knew it that you would do this. And now I'm, I'm absolutely cheesed off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, he goes and he sits and he watches. I'll wait and see. Maybe God still will destroy it. Will he, He'll end the enemies of Israel. But then God kind of plays this little trick on him. He grows a plant, gives him shade, kills the plant, and Jonah's angry again, and, and then we're left with the question, right? Jonah, you care about this plant. What did you do to grow it? What did you do to water it? Why do you love this plant? Well, because it provides me shade, right? It, it provides something for me. That's why I love it. Well, what about all these people over here, right? This great city of Nineveh, where there is more than 120,000 people, not plants, 120,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. They, they don't know my laws. They don't know they're, they're doomed towards destruction on the, on the way that they're going. And they've got many animals as well, which is why I sent you to them, to tell them, to correct them, to tell them about my judgment. They might repent. Like, who should you care more for? And, and there's the big question of the book, right? And that's what we're left hanging with, this cliffhanger. There's no answer from Jonah. Instead, it's like the question comes directly to us. Who do you care about? Right? And who are those people who perhaps you just wouldn't, you wouldn't cross the room you know, to tell them about God's judgment and about his mercy and his love? And again, you know, it's often because we have this really small view of God's amazing grace, um, maybe because we love his justice for us when we're helpless, but we have the double standard of not loving his forgiveness and mercy and justice for others when you know, they're not the people we care for. Yeah, I think that's a really good challenge. Uh, I think often f- like when you really push people on it, and this isn't just youth kids, but it's definitely mm-hmm. really applicable to them. When you push them on it, there are probably people in their lives that they don't want to stand alongside mm-hmm. in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that that's just such a horrible way to think. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it is a hard thing to, to kind of really ask yourself for, because I think if you've grown up in the Christian world, we, you know, you're trained not to hate anybody, right? We never say, I, you know, no one says I hate anybody because that's an unchristian thing to say. But in practice, there are people that we hate, right? There are people that we neglect and we deliberately avoid in our lives for whatever reason. And it's worth actually just taking the moment to stop and say, all right, who are those people? And that, that's a hard question, I think, for us to ask. And it's a probing question, but it's one which is worth asking. And then, and then to ask yourself whether or not you think those people are, are worthy of God's amazing grace. Because you're not worthy, and yet you've received it. So why not? Why not then? You know? I think the big question of the book in the end, from the beginning to the end, is are you concerned for what God is concerned for? That's really what God is asking Jonah. Do you care about what I care about? And you know what I care about? I care about this 120,000 people besides their animals as well. Yeah, and so as we, as we kind of look to, to wrap up, uh, why, 
Why do you think this book is so valuable uh, for youth ministry? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's short. That's always a, a helpful thing. I reckon you can cover it very quickly. You could probably even, you know, preach or go through Jonah in one sitting if you wanted to. But it's funny. It's engaging. It's got uh, unexpected twists and turns. It's got irony. Um, it, it has all the kind of creative things I think that you're looking for in, in an engaging text. It's it's needle sharp and it has this. It's artistically and and crafted, you know, in the way that it's been put together to be this kind of ripper yarn. Um, but I think it also it kind of points us towards the power of God to act by His Word to bring people to salvation, and to do that even through idiots like Jonah. Uh, and so um, sometimes when I've uh, preached on the book of Jonah, I've finished with the reference to Jonah in Luke 11, where people are asking Jesus for a sign, and Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Um, and you think, well, what is the sign of Jonah? But in the context of Luke 11, Jesus is saying, well, the sign of Jonah is actually the powerful, transforming word of the Lord, because it's the word of the Lord that comes to Jonah, it's the word of the Lord that comes through Jonah to the Ninevites to bring this whole great city to repentance and salvation. And God does that through his word using a reluctant, recalcitrant, unrepentant, self-obsessed, self-centered prophet, so to speak, disobedient prophet even, who was disappointed at God's grace and mercy, who didn't want to see people saved. God still used that idiot to bring about the salvation of an entire city. And, and so Jesus says to them, you know, you'll receive the, the sign of Jonah uh, because one who is greater than Jonah is here. You saw the word of the Lord work through this guy. Now listen to the word of the Lord come through me. Now see the fruit of the word of the Lord as I heal the sick, as I you know, bring the paralyzed to walk, as, as I bring the blind to see, and even as I raise the dead and cast out demons. One greater than Jonah is here. And, you know, the, the queen of the south will rise up and they would judge this generation because um, you heard the words, you saw them lived out in a way more powerful than Jonah and yet you still failed to believe. And there's two kind of things happening there for us. You know, one is we should look to Jesus for the ultimate authority of God's word and the way that it brings both judgment and salvation. The power of God's word when it comes through a prophet who actually is obedient to the word of the Lord and does want to see people saved. But the other side of it is that we should see that God's word is powerful even through people like Jonah, even through people like us, even through people that don't know how to articulate the gospel properly, even through people who you know, stumble over our words, who don't always live lives of loving our neighbours, who maybe don't have practices that demonstrate our love for the Lord as well as we should. God can still use the word of the Lord through you to bring people to repentance um, because you know we have the Lord Jesus. And there is that wonderful big challenge, I think, from the book of Jonah. And one of the reasons why it's worth kind of reading again and again because it helps us to, it rebukes us and corrects us and it sets us on you know the path of grace and, uh, and reliance on the sovereignty of God and his word. Yeah, oh, what a wonderful place uh, to, to wrap up. I really appreciate uh, you giving me some of your time, Mike. Mm. Uh, it's, yeah, it just seems to be a really wonderful, uh, important book for us to read and something that I hope people uh, will start jumping into in their youth ministries. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a presentation from Old News Bible. 
you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at oldnewsbible at gmail.com. All quotes from the Bible were taken from the New International Version 2011, and the music is Amber by Drake Stafford.